Section 7 of The Byzantine Empire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Botez. The Byzantine Empire The Rear Guard of European Civilization by Edward Ford. The Warrior Heracliads. The period 641 to 717 is in many ways the most obscure in late Roman history. The records are scanty and unsatisfactory. There is a reason to think that important events are misrepresented. The whole epoch is a twilight one. The natural successor of Heraclius was his eldest son and colleague, Constantine III. But the old emperor could deny nothing to his wife, and had designated her son Heraclius as co-heir with Constantine. He was only sixteen. Constantine was already nearly thirty. It was evident that the name of Heraclius II would be merely a cloak for the exercise of his mother's power. Martina showed her hand by accompanying the emperors to the Hippodrome when they went in the state to be acclaimed by the people according to custom. But the Constantinopolitan populace would have none of her. She was greeted by angry shouts and finally told in decided tones that the Roman Empire should never fall so low as to be governed by a woman. She withdrew in wrath. There does not appear to have been any demonstration against Heraclius II. Heraclionas, as he is commonly called, to distinguish him from his father, but the general voice was certainly in favor of Constantine III. Martina, determined to assert herself, began to intrigue against her stepson. Court and capital split into factions. There seemed every probability of a civil war. In the midst of plot and counterplot, Constantine died at Chalcedon after a reign of little more than three months. He was not, perhaps, a man of any great strength of constitution. His mother had been a delicate woman. But public opinion declared that Martina had poisoned him. Certainly her reckless action gave color to the report. She promptly proclaimed her son sole emperor. The act was unwise. It was scarcely constitutional. It was intensely unpopular, and all Constantinople, court, senate, and army, loudly demanded the coronation of the dead man's eldest son, Flavius Heraclius Constantinus. Riots at once broke out. The senate voiced the popular demand. Martina, in terror, gave way and the youthful Constantinus was crowned emperor at the age of eleven. 
For a while discontent was outwardly silenced, but it still fermented in secret, and in September 642 the Senate executed a coup d'etat, deposed Heracleonas, and exiled him and his mother to Kherson in Taurida, the friend and ally of the empire, the last surviving free Greek city-state. They were treated with barbarous cruelty. The tongue of the mother and the nose of the son were slit. We shall meet with instances of these hideous practices again. Martina was certainly generally believed to have poisoned Constantine III. It was a shocking end to the story of the woman who had been the darling of the great Heraclius. Martina was morally neither better nor worse than a hundred million women today who plot for their children's advancement. But her stake was the Roman Empire. She failed and had to pay a terrible penalty. The young Constantine IV was now sole emperor. For some curious reason, impossible to define with any certainty, he has come to be known to several chroniclers, both in East and West, as Constance. But he will be called here by the name which he bears upon his coins, and by which he was known to his own people. For some years the government was carried on by the Senate. There was little internal trouble. The great African house had won the love and respect of the people. Constantine's youth gave the Senate much influence, which, so far as appears, was exercised with prudence and patriotism. They were never more needed. The Mohammedans were thundering at the gates of Taurus. The people, if attached to Heracliads, were more or less discontented and restive beneath the burdens which they had to bear, and had not yet realized that, though under the caliphs the direct taxes might be lightened, their indirect burdens would be greatly increased. After a spell of personal experience, men began to discover that, under the supposedly tolerant Mohammedan rule, they had absolutely no guarantee against oppression and even persecution, that the administration of justice was irregular, arbitrary, and corrupt, and that they and theirs were at the mercy of an irresponsible religious despotism. As yet, there was no great disposition to think that the rule of the Crescent was worse than that of the Cross. People heard the mild and sanctimonious proclamations of the Caliphs, and forgot that they and their followers were half-savage freebooters and religious maniacs. The reign of Constantine IV was probably the true crisis of the struggle. The empire, thrown on the defensive, 
was pressed continually and had no time to rally. Once it gained a breathing space, it stood up gallantly to its terrible foes, and even in its present wasted and mangled condition could wage a not unequal conflict. But the respite was yet to come. The great Caliph Omar was still urging on the work of its prophet, and the empire continued to lose ground. Internally, the earlier years of Constantine IV were not marked by any events of much importance. There were one or two slight outbreaks which were easily put down, but there was a good deal of disaffection due to the religious question which always occupied much of the East Romans' attention. Heraclius, as we have seen, had tried and failed to soothe the dissensions in the church by his excesses. Now, in 648, Constantine and his advisers published a fresh edict on the subject, the type by which all were enjoyed to observe complete silence on the burning question of the single and double wills. It was as completely ineffective as the excesses. It failed to satisfy even the monothelites, while the orthodox attacked the young emperor as a monothelite himself. The Western clergy exclaimed against the edict. Bishop Theodore of Rome excommunicated Paul, Patriarch of Constantinople. His successor, Martin, anathematized the ecthesis and the type alike. But it was a dangerous act to bear the strong and determined Constantine IV, and Pope Martin's anathema had disastrous results for himself. We must now turn to the Saracen War, which for the whole of this period is the dominating factor in East Roman history. Alexandria fell during the brief reign of Heraclius II, and the state of affairs at home prevented any immediate attempt to recover it. But the government had no intention of taking the blow calmly. As soon as internal affairs had to some extent been arranged, preparations were made for the reconquest of Egypt. They were interrupted in 645 by a rebellion in Asia Minor, but this was put down, and in 646 the general Manuel recaptured Alexandria. It was once more besieged by Amru, who, after more than a year, finally retook it, celebrated his conquest by a massacre of its Greek inhabitants, and left it to ruin, not to recover for many centuries. So much indignation is commonly expanded over the barbarity of Rome in destroying Carthage and Corinth, that it seems necessary to dwell for a moment on the immeasurably worse barbarity of the much-lauded Arabs. 
The Roman was savagely cruel at times, but at his worst he conferred a certain benefit upon the peoples whom he conquered. Even the oppression of such as Verres incidentally inform us that under Roman rule men and cities could become rich. At its best, Roman government did much. The Arab could confer no such benefit upon mankind as Rome. His civilization was an exotic and unhealthy growth, which withered early. In 646, Gregory, exarch of Africa, revolted. The outbreak seems to have been largely in the nature of a protest against the monothelitism of Constantine. Thereupon, the Arabs invaded Africa with a large army under the emir Abdullah Abusar. Gregory was defeated and slain. Tripolis was captured and the Saracen frontier pushed forward to the Gulf of Gabes. But the Christian population recovered its spirit when once it found the Mohammedans among it and soon began to wage a fierce partisan warfare against the invaders. The Arabs succeeded in occupying Carthage, but their possession of the famous city was very precarious and was only rendered possible by the solely pressed condition of the empire in the east. The great Caliph Omar had died in 643. His successor, Otman, was not so strong a ruler, and the emirs began to fall out of hand. The conquest of Persia also was still slowly proceeding, and the haphazard strategy of the Arabs dissipated their forces all the east over. Still, however, the Mohammedans advanced, though far more slowly than at first. Cyprus was overrun by a dash from Syria and put under tribute in 643. In 646, a small Roman force which still hovered in northern Syria, was beaten back across Taurus, and Saracen raiders began to appear in Asia Minor and Armenia. Muavia, emir of Syria, must have the credit of being the first to see that nothing decisive could be accomplished against the empire while it still retained command of the sea. Alexandria was untenable for this reason. In Syria, the Sigurd fortress of Aradus was still holding out. Moavia set himself to build an enormous naval armament. He was much hampered by the fact that the Lebanon region was only partially subdued, and still full of desperate Christians who waged an incessant predatory war, sometimes raiding almost to the gates of Damascus. Nevertheless, Moavia persevered, and in 649 a huge flotilla made an attack on Cyprus. This was repelled, but next year Aradus was blockaded, captured, and 
with the customary blind barbarity of the conquerors, utterly destroyed. Another stage in the ruin of the sea commerce of Syria. In 651, there were raids into Asia Minor. In 652, the patrician Pasagnathis surrendered Roman Armenia to the Arabs, and such as towns as did not refuse to submit were occupied. A fresh expedition to recover Alexandria was encountered and defeated by Moavia's fleet off the canopic mouth of the Nile, an event of great importance, since thereby the Saracens acquired confidence on the sea. Various attempts made by the Roman troops to recover the lost portion of Armenia were frustrated, and the Saracen navy sailed into the Aegean, plundered Kos, and occupied Rhodes, loading their ships with the fragments of the famous Colossus, and returning in triumph to Syria. Moavia now resolved to strike up the Aegean at Constantinople. It is to be noticed that there had been no attempt to force the passes of Taurus. Constantine had put Asia Minor into a good state of defence, it is to do with this period that the winter is inclined to attribute the new thematic military organization to which reference will shortly be made. It certainly explains satisfactorily the young emperor's apparent inaction. In 655, the Saracen fleet started for the Aegean while Moavia advanced to force the Taurus passes. Off Phaselis in Lycia, the Arab armament was met by the Roman fleet under the emperor, and a tremendous battle was fought. Constantine was in the hottest of the fray. His own ship was boarded and taken. He only escaped by a wild leap into another galley, which forced its way up to the rescue, while his flag captain and the remnant of his guards fought to death to give him time. The overthrow of the Romans was complete. They lost 20,000 men, but their enemies had suffered almost as much and could not follow up their success. Moavia had failed to achieve anything in the Taurus region and, though beaten in the actual fighting, Constantine had evidently gained a strategic success. In 656, the Caliph Otman was murdered, and civil war broke out among the Saracens. Moavia, who professed to be the avenger of Otman, prepared to march against Ali in Mesopotamia but he could not leave the Roman Empire in his rear. He proposed a truce, on the basis that for every day during which it lasted, he was to pay the emperor a horse and a slave. Even granting the urgency of the case, it is tolerably evident that he considered the empire a very formidable foe. 
it is possible that he had suffered more severely in his mounting campaign of 655 than we are aware. We may notice that Constantine had had a year in which to prepare for a fresh effort, and evidently his toil had not been without result. That he was right in preferring the truce to further warfare, even with a fair chance of success, is indubitable. Having secured the Asiatic frontier, Constantine turned to the west, where the Slavs had literally eaten out the heart of the Balkan peninsula. The stern young emperor was determined to concentrate his attention upon a thorough reorganization of the remaining strength of the empire, and he began with the Balkan regions. The Slavs were reduced for the time to complete subjection. Large numbers of captives were carried off, and a regular tribute was imposed. This settlement probably took up most of 657 and 658, and for some three years thereafter, Constantine labored at his task with very considerable success. The fact that he was able soon afterwards to go himself with a great part of his available troops to the west shows that he has satisfactorily arranged matters, and this is further borne out by the fact that the Arabs made no serious impression on Asia Minor during his absence. The new thematic system must now be briefly alluded to. It grew out of the military needs of the empire, and its development is traced in greater detail in the chapter on the imperial naval and military systems. Here it is only necessary to notice that the whole imperial territory was now mapped out into large military departments, probably at this period twelve in number, varying greatly in extent and in the strength of the forces cantoned in them. The most important was the great Orient or Anatolic theme, the department of the troops who had contested Syria with the Arabs. None of the others were so large. The general of each theme was also the civil governor, a state of things brought about by the constant pressure of the Mohammedans. The entire force of the themes at this time may have been about 200,000 men, but, of course, only a part of these were available for the field. The East reduced to order and in a better case for defense, than it had been for many years, Constantine turned to the west. In 655 he had succeeded, weak as was his hold in Italy, in laying hands on Pope Martin I and exiling him to Kherson. But north of Rome his authority was very precarious, and the Lombards, under the great king Rotari, were steadily extending their boundaries. Constantine's purpose seems to have been to recover the West, 
Perhaps he did not realize that the Lombards were firmly established in Italy, but at all events he was not a man to shrink from any task. Africa, too, had to be recovered. Before he started westward, he had one grim deed to do. In 660, he put to death his only brother, Theodosius. To expand language over the act is absurd. The ethics of morality cannot be applied to it. We do not know the cause. We must remember that even brotherhood is not incompatible with treason. The Heracliad emperors indeed seem to have been lacking in natural affection. Constantine the Fourth was certainly a hard man, regardless of human suffering, but he lived in terrible times. If, in his haste and desperate purpose, he removed a possible source of trouble, it is well to remember this. In 662, the emperor left his capital, never to return. He left his family under the guardianship of the Senate. So dark are the shadows around him that we do not even know his wife's name. In Piraeus he gathered a large fleet and army and sailed to Tarentum. His first quarry was the great Lombard duchy of Beneventum. But the moment of his arrival was ill-timed. Grimwald, its duke, had seized the Lombard crown, and his son Romwald had been left in charge of his ancestral possessions. The whole Lombard kingdom, therefore, was for once in a state of cordial union. The emperor, however, overrun the entire duchy and penned up Romwald in Beneventum. But on hearing that King Grimwald was on his way to his son's rescue, he granted him peace on easy terms and moved off to Rome, leaving 20,000 men under a Persian exile named Shapur to watch Grimwald. Shapur was beaten at Forino by Romwald, and possibly the news may have induced Constantine to alter his immediate plans. He remained only twelve days in Rome, and gained a reputation almost as bad as that of Geyseric, wringing out of the scanty population a forced contribution in money, to complete which he even stripped the pantheon of its gilded bronze roof. Leaving Rome, stripped and sullen, Constantine set out for the south, Evidently he had made up his mind that the conquest of the Lombards must be deferred. His ascendancy in the field is shown by the fact that he marched from Rome to Regium without molestation. He crossed into Sicily and for the next four years had his headquarters at Syracuse, still a large and important city. His change of plan was largely due to the important circumstance that Moavia's rival, Ali, was dead, and the former, now supreme in the East, was recommencing his attacks on the empire. He had already experienced 
the strength of the Taurus as a defensive line and was more disposed to push westwards against Africa than to uselessly throw his hosts against the great mountain chain. On the whole, Constantine was successful. He recovered Carthage and the surrounding country, and though an army which he sent against Egypt was severely defeated before Tripolis, the Saracens could move no farther westward. It was evident that the empire could still meet its enemies on equal terms. In Italy, Romwald succeeded in taking Tarentum and Brundusium, but gained no great advantage, and the weakening of imperial rule there was more due to Constantine's crushing taxation than to the Lombards. Defaulting taxpayers were sold into slavery. Men said that nothing like Constantine's exactions had ever been heard of. He went as far as stripping the churches of their plate. He was perhaps right. The public necessities were great. But his proceedings were undoubtedly harsh and did much to alienate Italian public opinion. Meanwhile, the Arabs each year directed ravaging expeditions into Asia Minor. They were as purposeless as such raids commonly are, but were so far useful to the Saracens that the great army in Asia was kept pinned to its stations and could not be utilized to reinforce Constantine in the West. Otherwise, an attempt would probably have been made to reconquer Egypt and Syria from the rear. As it was, Constantine could not do more than hold firmly to Africa and the extreme south of Italy, while the Arab horsemen raided through Taurus. In 668, Shapur, the general of the Armeniac theme, revolted. The rebellion was suppressed with no great difficulty by the government of Constantinople, but the Arabs seized the opportunity to make an unusually determined inroad, captured Amorium in Phrygia and garrisoned it with 5,000 troops. The place was retaken by escalade, and the Arab garrison exterminated. Constantine the Fourth always gives the impression of loneliness. His treatment of his brother emphasizes his terrible isolation. He lived alone in the West. His family never joined him. While he was recovering Africa, holding back the Saracen, gathering strength for a fresh attack on Lombardy or an invasion of Egypt, he was solitary, uncheered by the society of wife or child, probably feared and shunned by the officials and courtiers who dreaded his stern, fierce nature. Slowly gathering discontent at last came to a head, and the strange, strenuous, desolate life ended in a strange death. The emperor one day went to bathe in the Daphne Bass. 
he was attended by a servant named Andreas, and having stripped, held out his hand for soap. The man, instead of giving it, smote his master a furious blow on the head with a marble box and, throwing it away, fled, leaving one of the ablest and strongest of the emperors of the Roman East lying lifeless, cut off in his vigorous prime. Constantine the Fourth was only thirty-eight at the time of his death. We can only wonder what might have happened had he lived and ruled for twenty years longer. He is emphatically a man of whom we would gladly know more. He left Asia Minor solidly organized and defended, the Balkan Slavs reduced to submission, and established a Syracuse, he had recovered Africa, and was prepared to turn at the right moment on Italy or Egypt. Under his firm rule, the empire had lost very little more territory and was well organized to meet its foes. The effects of the grim emperor's work were to be felt in the reign of his son. Constantine V was at Constantinople when the news arrived of his father's murder and the revolt of the army in the west. He was only eighteen, but he never seemed to have hesitated. He sailed at once for Sicily and quashed the sedition. Mesitius, the Armenian general, whom the troops had crowned, was executed, and some at least of his supporters were treated with a severity that showed that the young emperor had inherited his father's heavy hand. Having put Sicily in order, he started back for the capital in 669. Scarcely had he turned his back on Syracuse when it was taken and plundered by an expedition from Egypt. The Saracens made no attempt to retain the place, and the story that they carried off the treasures of Constantine the Fourth is manifestly highly improbable. We may be fairly certain that they were safe in the holds of his son's galleys on the way to the capital. When he started for Sicily, Constantine was a smooth-faced youth, but as his ship came up the Golden Horn, on his return the spectators saw that his chin was thick with a sprouting beard. The nickname of Pogonatus has clung to him down the ages, a fair example of the absolute caprice of popular nomenclature, for Constantine V was but one of many bearded emperors. Constantine's return was marked by a curious military demonstration by the Anatoliki. They demanded that he should give his two brothers, Heraclius and Tiberius, an equal share with him in the administration. Constantine appears to have already created them Augusti and his nominal colleagues, but he was resolved to permit no encroachment by soldiers on his imperial supremacy. 
he suppressed the mutiny with firm determination, but he does not seem to have molested his brothers, though Theophanes says that he slid their noses. The general consensus of modern opinion seems to be that this was done in 680 or 681, when they were deprived of their imperial rank. Both were evidently men of little weight or ability, but they may have been centers of conspiracy, and though the act was a sufficient cruel and barbarous one, Constantine shrunk from fratricide, and this should be remembered to his credit. His treatment of his brothers is, so far as is known, the one blot upon his character. He was certainly far less harsh than his father, while he inherited a good share of his vigor and ability. He was a worthy member of the great house of Heraclius, a hard worker, a steady fighter, with a high and strong sense of duty, and one who, while having a great opinion of his dignity, was yet moderate and tactful. Now that Constantine the Fourth was gone, Moavia believed that his time had come. In 669, three armies invaded the empire. One, as we have seen, plundered Syracuse. A second threw itself upon Africa, and in 670 founded the fortress of Kerwan, only 80 miles from Carthage, to which it constituted a standing menace. The third, under the Emir Fedil, pushed through Asia Minor and raided the shores of the Propontis. In 670 and 671 there were only desultory raids on Asia Minor which were kept at bay with little difficulty, but it was merely the lull before the storm. Moavia had resolved to break down the stubborn resistance of the empire by attacking it at its very center. Constantinople gone, the conquest of its outlying members could be effected at leisure. In 672, it became known that a vast Saracen armament would be before Constantinople that year or the next. Constantine, like Stilicho in 401, drew back all the troops possible to the point of danger and stationed his whole available fleet to guard the Hellespont. The troops who kept the Slavs in subjection were withdrawn and they promptly rose in revolt and proceeded to blockade Thessalonica. Africa was left to itself. The same was certainly not the case with Asia Minor. We hear of no conquests of importance there during the siege of the capital, as would have happened had the country been denuded of defenders. It seems very doubtful whether the Saracen force was not mainly transported by sea. Certain it is that the fleet was exceptionally strong. In March 673, 
the Saracen Armada forced the Hellespont, despite all opposition, took Cyzicus, and based on that town, landed its army in Thrace, and proceeded to blockade Constantinople. The fleet took station along the Thracian coast, with its right at the southwest angle of the city. The army lay encamped before the landward walls. There was much hard fighting. There were attempts to storm, but Constantinople was impregnable. The fleet lay secure in the Golden Horn, and coming out with the current round, Seraglio Point, made repeated attacks upon the Saracen ships to their loss and demoralization. The strange duel went on for six months. Then, in September, the Arabs embarked the blockading army and withdrew to winter at Cyzicus. Their fleet still held the passage of the Hellespont and was too overwhelmingly strong for the far weaker Roman squadrons to destroy and by means of convoys, foraging expeditions and corn grown on Arctonesos and the mainland, the Saracens had collected supplies enough for the winter. In the spring of 674, the army was once more landed in Europe and blockaded Constantinople for several months without the slightest result. In the sequel, the Saracens again fell back on Cyzicus and prepared for a fresh sally in the spring. Moavia seems to have resolved to wear down the stubborn Constantine by keeping up siege operations year after year. The idea was good, but not so the tactics of his generals. In the winter, the emperor was left free to reprovision his capital for the next year's ordeal. Then, again, the Arabs were not skilled in sieges. They clearly had no knowledge of Constantinopolitan topography. Instead of directing their attacks upon the point where the walls cross the Lycus Valley, they seem to have made them near the Golden Gate, at one of the strongest parts of the landward barrier. The only circumstance in favor of the success of the plan, as it was carried out, was the possibility that the great city would surrender from sheer weariness of constant leaguer. But emperor, troops, and people were solidly united in determination to do their duty. They had risen to the full height of the situation. There is no reason to doubt that the greatness of the occasion was fully understood. Africa, meanwhile, was holding out gallantly. Left to themselves, the provincials and troops fought with splendid determination and repeatedly drove back the Arab invasions. In 676, Kerouan was taken, and though reinforcements continued to pour in for the Mohammedans from the wild tribes of Barbary, they made no headway. Crete was subdued 
indeed by a force landed in the island by the Saracen fleet. But in Syria the Christians of Lebanon were doing gallant service to the cause, raiding almost to the gates of Damascus and terrorizing the lowlands. The year 676 dragged away without anything decisive occurring at Constantinople. But in 677 matters at last came to a head. For several centuries the Roman siege corps had employed some kind of incendiary compound of a very fierce nature, as witness Ammianus. The general opinion appears to be that its basis was petroleum. We are told repeatedly and emphatically that it could only be effectually smothered with earth or sand. The obstacle to its effective employment was that it could not be projected to even a moderate distance, since employed at close quarters it was as dangerous to friends as foes. But about this time some kind of a recipe for the manufacture of gunpowder had reached the empire from China. How or why is a mystery. Perhaps the Chinese government had obtained information as to the desperate plight of the Roman Empire and dreaded lest their turn should come next. Possibly some daring East Roman risked his life to obtain the secret. Be this as it may, the trouble of projection was overcome. The powder was used to project incendiary shells or rockets filled with a fire from tubes or siphons. Probably the powder was very bad, and the dangerous compounds were not stored in any great quantity on board ship for fear of accidents. Very possibly, they were not employed frequently, owing to the difficulties of procuring enough of the materials for a large quantity of the fire. But on the whole, Greek fire was by no means a contemptible weapon, and on favorable occasions it might be very formidable. Such an occasion was the present one. The Roman fleet, or part of it, had been fitted with siphons, cannon, in fact, and a bold attack was made on the Saracen fleet, which was completely defeated. The spirit of the whole armament had been greatly depressed by its continued ill-success. Its commander-in-chief, Abdurrahman, had fallen. So, too, had Abu Ayyub, one of the few surviving original companions of Mohammed, and the naval victory completed its demoralization. The army was able to get back to the Asiatic coast and began to retreat by land, while the fleet sailed down the Hellespont and made its way homeward round the coast. Constantine followed up his success with energy. The Saracen land army was now commanded by the emir Sofian ibn Anf. On his retreat, he was overtaken by the Persian Roman army 
under the generals Petronas, Florus, and Cyprianus, and totally defeated, with a loss of 30,000 men. Only a shattered remnant of the host reached Syria. The fleet was scattered by a storm off the coast of Lycia, and before it could reorganize, the Roman navy was upon it and nearly destroyed it. Moavia had done his best, and he had failed completely and disastrously. The loss of life must have been immense, and it was likely to be the more severely felt because, in the nature of things, it fell chiefly upon the Arabs, who still composed the great bulk of the Mohammedan forces in the east. The Mardates of Lebanon were wasting Syria. The one success that had been gained by the forces of the Caliphate was in Africa, where Emir Zohar had temporarily recaptured Kerouan. But the war in Africa was a mere side issue, and was hardly more than a continuation of the old Roman Berber guerrilla warfare. It did not affect the fortune of the main struggle. The Caliph decided to make overtures for peace before Constantine should make a counterattack, and the Emperor was willing enough to accede to honorable proposals. He sent the patrician Johannes Pizigodes as his plenipotentiary to Damascus and a treaty for thirty years was concluded. Moavia gave up all his conquests, and covenanted to pay for every year that the truce lasted three thousand pounds of gold, about one hundred and forty thousand pounds, fifty Arab horses, and fifty slaves. From all parts envoys poured in to Constantinople, to congratulate the emperor on his splendid triumph and once more the empire stood out before the eyes of the world as a leader of europe it may be that there were englishmen among them certainly there were avars lombards and franks it is probable also that the serbs croats and others at this time made formal proffer of allegiance. The Slavs, who all this time had been swarming about Thessalonica, were driven off and again coerced into submission. The triumph of Constantine was a great one. Had Constantinople fallen, the consequences must have been terrible. Lombardy was weak and disunited, while Francia, was in a state of anarchy. Visigothia was being ruled by the last of its vigorous kings, the famous Wamba, but was without real strength. It was to collapse like a house of cards before a small expedition thirty years later. The salvation of the empire was the salvation of Europe, and to the great Heracliads must the chief glory be given. The peace did not lead to a cessation of hostilities in Africa, where the irresponsible Mohammedan emirs continued to make attack after attack, 
all of which were stoutly met and repulsed, for the emperor could now spare assistance to his gallant liegemen. Two years later, in 679, there was an unfortunate mishap in Europe, which ultimately led to serious consequences, but at the time it did not appear to be of any great importance. A tribe called the Bulgarians, probably of Turkish race, had long been domiciled on the middle Volga, and a part of them had joined the Avars in their advance westward. After 626 they had revolted, and their king, Kurt, had made an alliance with Heraclius. In 679 they crossed the Danube and began to settle in Messia, now only inhabited by a sparse population of Slavs. Constantine promptly took an expedition by sea to the mouth of the Danube, but after some preliminary success, a panic seized part of the army and, while in confusion, it was attacked and cut up by the Bulgarians. Mesia was practically worthless, and Constantine decided not to attempt, for the present, to further molest the intruders. He gave them permission to settle, subsidizing them to refrain from raiding Thrace, and thus, for the present, matters were left. He probably intended to subdue them later, but as it happened, did not live long enough to do so. His last years were passed in well-deserved peace. In 680, he decided to call a general council of the church to dispose of the monothelite heresy. His reputation was shown by the eagerness with which his proposal were accepted, and his courtesy and tact were well displayed in his dealings with the Pope and other patriarchs of the Christian faith. An assembly of over 170 delegates from all parts of the Christian world finally met under the personal presidency of the emperor in a great domed hall in the imperial palace at Constantinople. And after 18 sittings, monothelitism was condemned and the doctrine enunciated that in the Savior's being there are two natural wills and two natural energies, without division, alteration, separation, or confusion. To the lay student this appears involved, but it was and is highly satisfactory to ecclesiastics, and the successful outcome of the Sixth Ecumenical Council put the keystone on the arch of the glory of Constantine, who had now, at the age of thirty, saved his heritage from imminent peril of destruction, forced his most terrible enemy to a humiliating peace, and had quelled the dissension in the Christian Church. Meanwhile, in 680, Moavia had died, and the Caliphate had become involved in civil war. His successor, Yezid, at once renewed the treaty with the empire on similar terms. In 683, Kerwan 
was taken once more by the army and provincials of Africa, and the country swept clear of its enemies. In 684, Abd al-Malik engaged in strife with other candidates for the caliphate, hastened to secure himself by renewing the peace with the empire, and secure on every hand, victorious and renowned in war and peace, honored alike in east and west, Constantine might well look forward with confidence to the future, and anticipate many years of peaceful revival and reconstruction. But it was not to be. In 685, at the age of only 36, cut off like his father in his vigorous prime, Constantine V died, leaving the throne that he had defended so well to his youthful son, Justinian II. End of section 7 Recording by Mike Botez